Well, good morning. Thank you, Pastor Rick, for that. Thank you for those kind words. Um, it has been a privilege to step up here this uh, past year so often. Um, I consider this a joy and a privilege to be able to prepare um, sermons, and uh, I mean, I enjoy doing it. <laughs> the work is all my wife's, I must say, to take care of the kids when I'm doing this. So she labors, but uh, I've been really enjoyed working through Philippians for the second time and very freshly and very anew. We're still in the book of Philippians. You can turn to chapter 4. We'll be dealing with the verses 14 to 20. We're not quite at the end. We're almost there. Now, last time we were in Philippians, we noted that Paul began to conclude his letter on a note of rejoicing found in chapter 4, verse 10. And he writes this, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. That great theme of rejoicing and joy that we have seen throughout the letter now, the final mention of it here in 4, verse 10, as he concludes this letter. Now, part of the purpose of Paul's writing is to thank them for their revived concern, especially the monetary gift that they contributed to him through Epaphroditus, which we'll see, which is where it gets to here in this section. Now, this section stretches from chapter 4, verse 10 through 20. It's an entire unit, but I decided to break it up in two parts. The first dealing with the subject of contentment, which we looked at last time, and the second, dealing with the subject of generosity, which we'll look at today. Now, believe it or not, but the subject of generosity was discussed at length in the ancient world and was considered a virtue. In fact, it's the third virtue discussed in Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. I always get that one a little bit tricky. It was later picked up by the French philosopher René Descartes, and Descartes described generosity as the key to all other virtues, and since by it a person uses their personal means to further the good of others. But both Aristotle and Descartes pointed out that there are rules to authentic generosity. Firstly, it is a habit learned, so it doesn't come easy, it's a habit learned, Secondly, the truly generous don't depart from their means begrudgingly. They do it joyfully. That's a rule. Generous people give to the right people in the right, at the, to the right people in the right amounts and for the right purposes. <laughs> so it's not just giving. It's not just giving away your money and you know, living a life of poverty as perhaps some of the monastics might just give to anyone. It's actually giving to the right people the right amounts for the right purposes. It's really important to understand how they thought about generosity in the ancient world because it's going to come over here in our text today. Now, I have titled this week's sermon, The Joy of a Generous Church. The Joy of a Generous Church. In fact, as we shall see, Paul's rejoicing is in part because of the Philippians' generosity towards him throughout his whole ministry, especially now as he sat in a Roman prison. Now, this section, we will learn aspects of a generous church. So, let us read together from God's Word. We'll be looking at Philippians chapter 4, and we'll be reading verses 14 through 20. This is God's Word. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble, writes Paul. And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia... No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, grant us now, this week as we look at the joy of a generous church, and the Philippian church is a paradigm for us to follow. Help us to consider our own hearts as we are laid bare before you in our thoughts and intentions of our wills. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
Now, church finance meetings can be complex, confusing, and just downright concerning. <laughs> Individual members give from their private means in order to see the collective vision of the local church expanded. That's why we give. But exactly how that vision is expanded with the financial means we've been given can drag members' meetings out way longer than they should go sometimes. And opinions are vast. Can we justify spending all those costs for the upkeep of the building? Should we pay the pastoral and administrative staff more? How much of our budget ought to be allocated for local missions and global missions? What about the Benevolence Fund? And then there's always the burning question of how much ought to be spent in the running of various meetings, like the inward-focused church, right? Should we be spending money on tea and cake? Now, in our text this morning, we won't find answers to these specific questions. <laughs> so that's kind of a lame introduction, right? I'm not going to answer those questions. But we will see certain principles that ought to govern our decision-making process. And that's what's really important here. The big idea for this section is that a healthy church is a generous church. A healthy church is a generous church. Now, notice what I say. I didn't say that a wealthy church is a generous church. I didn't say that a large church is a generous church. I said that a healthy church is a generous church. Regardless of how large the church is or how financially stable the church is, generosity in the church is a sign of health, not wealth. But we will also learn that generosity must be specific. True generosity isn't careless or impulsive. It is calculated and measured. Now, we will unpack the section in five parts since Pastor Scott last week told us that a good reform sermon has five parts. So I thought I'll follow suit. And I'll give you five parts this week for the five points of Calvinism. <laughs> five points this part. The first is we will look at a paradigm for generosity in verses 14 to 16. Secondly, we'll look at generosity's produce. Generosity's produce. And by produce, I mean fruit, vegetables. We use the word produce in South Africa. My wife told me that in America, you don't really use that word produce. But fruits, vegetables, and such a thing. So you understand where I'm going with that. Generosity's produce, verse 17. Thirdly, we'll look at generosity's praise in the terms of worship, verse 18. And fourthly, a generous promise given, verse 19. And fifthly, a glorious purpose, verse 20. So a paradigm for generosity, generosity's produce, generosity's praise, a generous promise, and a glorious purpose. So let's look at the first of these, a paradigm for generosity, verses 14 to 16. When Paul thought about the Philippian church, when he brought them to mind, his heart overflowed with joy and thanksgiving to God in prayer. Remember how he opened up his letter in chapter 1, verse 3 to 5? This is what he said. He said, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I just want to pause you for a second. Am I too loud? Am I not echoey over there by you? All right, good. I'm echoey up here, so I was just wondering. All right, if I'm not too loud, then I'm good for you. All right, so this is where he opens up this letter. He opens up with thanksgiving, with joy, because of their partnership in the gospel with him from the first day until now. So right throughout his ministry, since he knew them. Now, this partnership is elaborated here in verses 14 to 16, as he draws this letter to a close. Twice in these verses, Paul uses the cognate verb for the noun partnership found in 1 verse 5. Paul writes here in verse 14, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. That same word is a cognate verb of that very initial noun. Share in my trouble. And then continues in verse 15, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership, same word, with me in giving and receiving except you only. Interesting, no church except you. So we know that this church had been actively partnering with Paul in his ministry since the time of their planting, right up till his point here at the end of his life in imprisonment in Rome. 
Now, we know that this partnership was in the defense and furtherance of the gospel, especially in the financial giving to Paul's mission for that end. This is exactly why Paul is writing to thank them. This is the purpose of the whole letter. It climaxes here at the end. He finally gets to his point. I mean, think about four chapters, and we finally get to the point right at the end. This is exactly why he started writing the letter, to thank them. But there is something we must note about Paul's description here. He writes that no church entered into partnership with me except you only. Now, to understand this, we have to turn to another passage found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 to 5. I want you to turn there because we're going to look at that passage and do a little bit of exegesis on that because it's a really important passage for understanding what Paul means here with that phrase. Now, just a short introduction to that little passage. Here to the Corinthian church, Paul is encouraging encouraging them to be generous towards the suffering church in Jerusalem. That's what Paul is doing. He's writing to the church in Corinth and urging them to give generously to a church that's undergoing severe trials in Jerusalem. And he uses the churches of Macedonia, which is where Philippi is, including Corinth, but the churches of Macedonia as a paradigm for generosity, specifically the Philippian church, though he doesn't name them here in the letter to Corinth. But it is clear that Paul wanted other churches to follow the pattern set by this Philippian church. He's using them as a paradigm. So let's read together 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 to 5, and I'll point out a few observations from this text to help us understand what, what Paul is trying to drive at here with the theme of generosity. Paul starts here in chapter 8, verse, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflown in a wealth of generosity on their part. (laughs) I mean, that's beautiful writing right there. Just look at all the contradictions here, (laughs) if you want to look at it. Paul speaks of the grace of God that was given to these churches, starting with a severe test of affliction. I don't know, if you're in a severe test of affliction, is that the grace of God or is it His punishment? Here, Paul says, it's the grace of God amidst the affliction given to them. But look at what else they received. Abundance of joy, which is the characterized really by the expression of it in the financial given to Paul here in the letter to Philippi. Abundance of joy together with extreme poverty. You see those contrasts there? They have abundance enjoy, yet they're extremely poor, materially. Now, some commentators have translated their poverty as abysmal poverty. It's a very strong word. They are really poor. They had fallen on economic hard times. And from this, Paul writes that their poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Do you see that? Isn't that strange? They have been generous with their limited means regardless of the economic climate. Why? Because of the grace of God that is poured over them in the gospel. That's exactly what Paul's trying to point out. But what is the lesson? The question is, what is Paul trying to drive at here? Why is he using this as an example? Were they unwise in their giving? Perhaps you can, on the surface reading, think that. Because, I mean, look at these people. I mean, you know what it's like. I don't know, I come from... You know, you know, context where we have a lot of poverty in, in South Africa. And sometimes in the context of poverty, there can be unwise giving, right? People can just be giving money away to unwise courses. The health and wealth prosperity gospel, for example, has ravaged Africa, especially among the poor, which tells them that if they want more blessings from God, they've got to give their financial means away, and they just unwisely give away. Is that the question? Is that what's going on here? Is Paul just taking their money like the health and wealth prosperity gospel teaches? No. That's not what he's getting at. In verses 3 to 4, Paul clarifies the principle. He says this, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So Paul's telling them is, hey, y'all can't give all this money (laughs) because you're poor. And they're saying, we want to take part in the relief of the saints. Paul writes that they gave according to their means and beyond their means. 
But this is not impulsive, uncalculated giving. If we continue to read the rest of the chapter, we went further into chapter 9, for example, even, we find that what these churches did was lower their standard of living so that they could further the good of the saints in Jerusalem. This is what they did. They counted the cost. And they said, hey, is there a way we can tighten our belts a little bit more so that we can give a little bit extra to help those saints in Jerusalem who have come under harder times than us? And as a result, they gave joyfully, not begrudgingly. But how, why, and what was it that enabled them to give in such a way? What was it that enabled them to rise up to the challenge and say, hey, there are other people who are in more need than us, and sure, we have our needs, but I think that if we forego that Starbucks coffee every once a week, we can maybe give that extra six bucks and hand it over to people who need food. What made them do that to the brothers, brothers and sisters in need? Well, Paul tells us the principle, right? They gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by God's will, to us. You see, there's the principle. They gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God, to us. And so what Paul is doing to the church in Corinth is giving them this principle, not actually telling them that, okay, here's a church and look how much they gave. You see, these guys are wonderful, follow the example, give them money. But he's giving the principle of what they had done first. How is it that a church can be generous? It begins by their condition before God. They gave themselves first to the Lord. They understood that they had received a wealth of generosity in the gospel from God Himself, and that was enabled them to be generous with their means that they have. Their limited means, but nonetheless with the means that they have. So there's the paradigm. The paradigm here is for us to see that generosity begins with an act of worship. And we're going to get into that a little bit more in one of our furthermore points. But the paradigm for this church is to recognize that they first gave themselves to worship, and then from those ends, they had a calculated reasoned end to begin their giving towards the needs of those in Jerusalem. Calvin comments on this passage, and he says, For what makes us more close-handed than we ought to be is, when we look too carefully and too far forward in contemplating the dangers that may occur, when we are excessively cautious and careful, when we calculate too narrowly what we will require during our whole life, or in fine, how much we lose when the smallest portion is taken away, the man that depends upon the blessing of the Lord has his mind set free from these trammels and has, at the same time, his hands open for generosity. Now, when I read Calvin of this, I thought to myself in the Western context in the 21st century, I live now in America with all of our insurances, with all of our things in place, with all of the wealth that we had. I was sitting here writing this sermon and looking around me, all the things that I accumulated in just my short time here in America, right? I'm not saying, hey, because America is so wealthy, I came here, I became wealthy, and I, no, even in South Africa, I had all these graces. What I'm saying is I looked around and saw of all of the things that I bought extra that I didn't really need, books. I mean, I'm, I've got, I'm a big fan of Lord of the Rings. I've got a whole lot of books on commentaries on Lord of the Rings that I recently bought, right? Uh, you know, the Rings of Power is now going, and I'm, so I'm into reading the Lord of the Rings again and commentaries on that. But things that I don't need. What this church in Philippi did and said, there are things that we don't need. And you know what? We're going to take the money we would have spent on those things, and we're going to give it to this church in Jerusalem. Why? Because they understood that God had lavished upon them His generosity in the gospel. And what else could they do but assist another church that was struggling worse than they were? That's the principle. Secondly, generosity is produce, verse 17. 
generosity is produce. Now, I, I refer to the word produce here in terms of fruits and vegetables, right? Produce, because that's what the text is going to tell us. And I want to use another little story from Luke's gospel to illustrate this point. In Luke's gospel, for us, we have the parable of the rich fool. Many of you may know it. Chapter 12, verse 13 to 21. Those familiar with the story will remember that it is all about a wealthy farmer who, whose ground, and the text tells us very clearly, the ground yields an abundant crop. So it's a farmer whose ground yields an abundant crop. And then considering what he ought to do, since his barns were too small for all the yield, he comes up with this pretty obvious plan to our Western minds. He says this, Ah, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And then in verse 19, Jesus says this, And I will say to my soul, <laughs> Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, this parable confuses many commentators. Why? Because all this farmer did was act wisely, <laughs> right? He invested in the stock market, and the stock market went really well, and he took the extra money then and reinvested into the stock market, right? That's what he did. Became really wealthy. I mean, is that wrong, is the question. But if you know where the narrative goes, you will remember the tragic end recorded for us in verse 20. But God said to him, listen to what Jesus' words is, that God says to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Jesus gives the point of the parable in verse 21 with a statement, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself is not rich towards God. All right? That's the point of the parable. The warning is given against covetousness, which is exactly where Jesus started in verse 15. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's where he started. But the point of the parable here is, the problem is that this guy's not being covetousness. It's his own possessions. Or is it? It's the ground that yielded the crop. <laughs> It was God's possessions that was given to him. And he coveted what God gave him in abundance so that he could be generous. That's what Jesus is driving at. You see, this is a Middle Eastern context. Middle Eastern context, all the things that this man does is wrong. He speaks to himself, Saul, I'm going to lay out treasures for myself. It's all about him. In our Western world, we need to hearken to that a little bit. This is the problem with us, is that when we get a yield, we don't see it as God's benefit to us so that we can be generous, we reinvest. And we don't, that's not a wrong principle to do, unless you're doing it for self. Me. I'm in control of my destiny there is no God, my thought. And I'm going to save up for myself so that I can sit back and relax and enjoy life and get that holiday by the sea every year or the house in the Bahamas. It's interesting that Jesus follows this parable in verse 22 and then turns to his disciples and says to his disciples this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your body, about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. And then Jesus climaxes this section in verse 31, urging his disciples to seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Seek the kingdom of God, and these things will be added to you. And in verse 32, he says this, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. <laughs> And he goes on to say this, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Now, is Jesus telling all of us to go and sell our possessions and give to the needy? No, he's not telling all of us to sell our possessions and give to the needy. The principle comes over from this farmer who was not generous with what he received. And the principle is this, is that the person sold on themselves and lives for themselves and lives only for their own glory will lose it all one day. But the person who is bent upon others and the glory of God in Christ 
will give it all away because they know what they will receive. It's not important to them. That's why Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's the principle. Do you see the connection? Now, the reason I did a mini-exposition of Luke 12 is because I think it illustrates what Paul is getting at here in verse 17 when he writes this. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I think it drives home the principle. Ultimately, Paul is concerned about this church's Christian growth. He's concerned about their sanctification. He's concerned about where they put their hearts. And he knows, he knows that if this little church practices the generosity in the wise and right means that they are, to stop them from doing so is detrimental to them. It's interesting that Paul uses the language here of business. <laughs> he says, I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Here Paul uses the concept of investment, particularly investment in the farming industry that yields a good return in one's input, exactly like the farmer of Luke 12. He's using the language of investment here, investment in the agricultural world. But he wants them to invest in the gospel so that it will bear fruit to their credit. You see, I'm seeking the investment in you that's going to bear fruit for your sake when Jesus returns one day. Investment in the kingdom. The question is, is Paul speaking of us buying a piece of heaven here? Is that what he's saying? That we can buy our way to heaven? Was that what Jesus is saying? That is not what Jesus and Paul are saying. What Jesus and Paul are both saying is that the principle stated by Jesus in Luke 12 verse 34 is, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And if we go back to 2 Corinthians and look at chapter 9 verse 6 to 15, we get what Paul is interested in. In Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 6, Paul uses another agrarian illustration of sowing and reaping before urging the Corinthians to give only what they have decided in their hearts to give so that they may not give under compulsion. Because he says there, God loves a cheerful giver. But then in verse 10, Paul writes, He who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed, sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. It's interesting that when he encourages the Corinthian church to give, he speaks of their increase in righteousness. What does he mean with that? Does that mean that we can work together with Christ's righteousness that He gives to us for salvation? No, that's not the righteousness that Paul's speaking of. He's speaking there of those who act and do the right thing. <laughs> Doing what is right. You see, the principle is this. Christians are, in fact, compelled to do what is right with our finances. And when we do the right thing with the means that God Himself is anywhere entrusted to us, being wise and generous stewards, then we are growing in Christian graces. How much you hold on to the things of this world, how much you fear the future, how little you give away, shows where your heart truly lies. I think it's John Wesley that said, the very last place of a man to be converted is his wallet. <laughs> right? I, I, I once saw a meme of a man going through the waters of baptism, but he had his hand out there and his wallet was in his hand, and he got baptized, right? but his wallet was up there. And I think it illustrates the point well. What Paul is interested in is where the hearts are of these people. I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. In other words, if they had wisely calculated their means and they knew that they could pinch a little bit more and give away a little bit more because they weren't so Distached to this present world and so interested in the glory of God and the advance of the gospel, Paul is not going to discourage that. 
He's not going to sit them down with him and, and say, hey, I think we need to do a Dave Ramsey course here on giving. He's going to encourage it because he knows that where they're placing their finances is actually a sign of where they've placed their hearts. Friends, <laughs> the spiritual growth evidence here is not how much they give, but rather how they give. I want you to see that. It's not about how much you give. It's about how you give, with what intentions and what your heart is. It is about how they view their property entrusted to them by God. It is not just about what you do when the stock market has gone through the roof and you have extra dollars and you don't, that you didn't account for. It is about what you do when the stock market has crashed and there is very little spare and the future looks very dark. It's not about how much or when you give at the right times. It's about the motivation every single time you do it with very little or very much. And that heart and motivation is open to God Himself. And that's where the reward lies. <laughs> that's the fruit that increases to your credit. Because that is spiritual maturity. Generosity is praise. Verse 18. Metaphors carry over power of meaning in picture form, right? And here in verse 18, Paul employs a powerful metaphor to describe the essence of Christian generosity. And this is where it gets to. You see, where Paul's going with this is exactly where he comes to here in verse 18. Our giving is an act of worship. That's what it is, point blank. <clears throat> now, I want to speak a little bit about something that concerns me in our modern times. It's something that I like, probably because my heart motivation is wrong, but it's something that concerns me. Now, I know there are good reasons for us to move with the times and our forms of giving to the local church. Electronic, electronic transfers, direct deposits, dropping off a check in the back in the box. But I feel that something is missing when we take away the plate from passing around the people. And I'll tell you what's missing. What's missing is that we have disconnected our giving from our worship. And I know that we don't intend to, but we have. Because giving is part of worship. And if we take that and put that onto Mondays or the business times or somewhere else, we suddenly, silently and slowly disconnect giving from the act of worship. When I think what we are doing here, when we come here, is we're bringing all of ourselves into the worship room, right? Now, that doesn't mean that we have to bring the plate back into the congregation. We don't do it like that over here. That's not what we're saying. But we need to have the attitude that we bring those finances with us here. How many of you come with your wallet? I leave my wallet at home for a reason, you know? But no, we bring our whole selves into this room when we worship, including our finances. Now, giving has always been intricately connected with worship right throughout the entire Bible, whether it be under the Old Covenant's form of official tithe or under the New Covenant's free will offering. Giving to the further the work of the gospel is part of the worship in the Lord. It's part of what we do as Christians. It is part of how we praise the Lord. It is part of our devotion. It shows us where our hearts lie. And Paul carries this over through the metaphor of a sacrifice here in verse 18. He says, I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. And then he adds, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You see that? Now what is very interesting about this metaphor is that Paul does not connect this gift from the Philippians with the old covenant tithe. He connects it with an old covenant sacrifices, particularly the burnt offerings. That's what he does. He connects burnt offerings, sacrifices, especially in Exodus 29 to 15 to 18, whereas that's a food offering. It's a ram that was slaughtered and offered up and burnt entirely as a food offering. He connects this language with burnt offerings. Now, we shouldn't read too much into the nature of the offering and find some parallel meaning other than what Paul intended. Except that what Paul is trying to say is that your giving is an act of worship. 
And you can do it in such a way that's pleasing to the Lord or displeasing to Him. You can offer blemished sacrifices, which displeases the Lord, or you can offer unblemished sacrifices, which is pleasing to the Lord. That's the idea that Paul's trying to drive home here. In the same way, you can give in a way that's pleasing to the Lord or displeasing to the Lord. You know what? If you give with a begrudging heart, bitterness, and I don't want to do this, I'm going to give it anyway because it's commanded, my tithes, 10%, exactly, cut it off, that's it, don't give. He doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. Now, sometimes we do that in learning how to be generous. All right, I'm a little bit begrudgingly. I need to trust the Lord with this. I'm going to give a little bit, and I'm going to see how He abundantly blesses me. (laughs) Still. But the point here is how you give is really important in your act of worship. Joyfully is how the Philippians gave. An act of worship. They pleaded with Paul to take part in the relief of the saints. Why? Because they first gave themselves to God and then to others. And this was portrayed here by Paul in the act of the sacrificial system. They gave unblemished sacrifices that was pleasing aroma to the Lord. And it came up to him as an offering that delighted him. Friends, we need to reorientate our perspective on positions. We need to reorientate our act of worship when we come to giving. When you transfer money to the church, do you do it as an act of worship? Do you pray over that giving? Do you ask the Lord's favor to it for it to be used wisely? Or have we just become this is just the thing that we do? It's a click of a button, and I don't think about it. Well, the Lord is interested in your heart in every single aspect of your life, (laughs) and especially when it comes down to your offerings. Now, I resonate very strongly with these reflections from a guy named Mark Paggart. He's an Anglican minister in Sydney, Australia. And he said this, I know the struggle to give because I know the hope that money money holds. (laughs) As a minister, it is easy to rationalize that my great financial sacrifices have already been made. I earned more when I was 22 in the corporate world than I ever did while working for a church. As an Anglican minister, the offer of highly subsidized private school lures me with the thoughts of what my children could have if I just gave a little less, or if my wife gave up voluntary service in our church and community in order to re-enter the workforce. As a husband and father living in the inner city, there are things that I want for my family that would be within reach if we only had just a little more. Isn't that so often what hinders our worship in the gift of giving, right? Sometimes we withhold because we fear the future. Sometimes we give thinking about the things we're just losing. (laughs) The pleasures we could have had. Well, maybe my kids won't afford that new jacket this Christmas. And I'll disappoint them. Or what if we could have it all? You see, how you approach your giving is crucial to your act of worship, what you do here on Sundays. And Paul wants you to see that from the text as the fragrant offering and sacrifice has to be unblemished before God. But here I want to give you a promise, verse 19, a generous promise. I'm not just going to leave you here with a nature of guilt and sacrifice. Here's a promise for you. When I was fresh out of high school, I worked with a nonprofit organization in the area of South Africa where there was extreme poverty with HIV and AIDS ravaging the whole community. It's probably one of the worst places and worst jobs I ever had in my life. At that time, in the early 2000s, South Africa had the highest figures of HIV and AIDS in the world. And the area in which I worked had the highest figures in South Africa. An entire generation of young adults between the ages of 18 and 30 were wiped out, which meant an entire new generation of breadwinners. Children were being left as orphans to grandparents or to no one. And so often the people that were left to them or they just end up being on the street, 
themselves were in dire poverty. Criminals were thriving. The gangs were thriving because children were joining the gangs to survive. And there was no work in the townships. So that even if there was a workforce, there was no work. The area that I worked was called the Valley of a Thousand Hills because of, it had these beautiful rolling green hills as far as the eye could see. It was this beautiful place. The natural beauty was spectacular, but the darkness in these hills was unimaginable. Dire poverty, crime, gang violence, death, HIV and AIDS, rapes, prostitutions, everything unimaginable. I was a newly converted Christian, and I went to this little church in this, in this valley and passed from Keys. And one day I was standing with Pastor McKees on one of these hills, and we were overlooking this area where his church was, just talking about their environment. They used to work in this environment. And I, and I asked him a very simple question. I asked him, how does he navigate hopelessness in this situation? How do you navigate it as a church pastor? And in a typical African fashion, he pointed to the hills and he asked me, do you see those hills? The Bible says that God owns all the cattle on those hills. Do you hear the laughter of those children? The Bible says that one child is worth more than all of those cattle. God does not leave us to despair. He leaves us with hope. And that was a powerful illustration of what Paul tells the Philippian church over here. In verse 19, Paul says to them that my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. It's like... Paul is telling this church here in their extreme poverty with the abundance of joy that they have, just like little Nkiza's church, that you are not left to despair. You are left with hope. My God will supply your every need. Now, I know we love this bumper sticker here. and We have it, we have it on bumper stickers. We have it on our fridges. My God is going to supply all of our needs. But we need to understand what is spoken of as needs in this text. Because you see, the people down in the valley of a thousand hills that I come from, their needs were bare minimum. If they had a table and chairs in their little hut, they were considered wealthy. You have a table and chairs to sit at. It's interesting that Paul speaks of needs in this way. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, 68, Paul speaks of, uh, to Timothy about needs. He says, with godliness and contentment, there's great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these things we will be content. You see the needs? If we have food and clothing, two very basic needs. If we have food and clothing, friends, God promises to meet your needs, not your wants. And when you separate our wants from our needs, what is it that I need to survive? Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't supply more than we need. He doesn't just give us the essentials, but that's what He promises. And coming from Africa and seeing how people survive with very little, I know that you don't need much to survive. But Paul is speaking of a generous God who supplies more than we need. He says this, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He lavishes his generosity upon his children, both material and spiritual. And this is why Paul includes in Christ Jesus, because he is thinking of all the salvific benefits that come with Christ, your heirs, according to the promise. You have been brought into his family. You've been given a kingdom. You have been received more than you can even imagine. And even in the present, Pastor McKees can look at that desolation that I thought was desolation, and he can see God does not leave us to despair. I was saying, I was looking at, reflecting as I'm writing this, to all of the things that I have around me, all of the stuff that I have accumulated. And I reflected on that fact that we're not monks. We don't have to give it away. 
This text is not calling me to say, go and sell everything that I have and give it away. We're not monks. We don't have to give it up. We don't need to take vows of poverty. We're not communists. It doesn't belong to the government. It is our possessions. It's my right to possess. God gives it to me for my enjoyment, for my use. And the Scripture is full of passages that speak to God's people enjoying the benefits of His pleasures and God lavishing His children with wealth even. Hard work and good ethic receives wealth, and you can enjoy that. You can read the Proverbs. You can read uh, Ecclesiastes. There is a lot of passages that speak about us enjoying this world, enjoying life. He supplies your every need. But the question is, why does He supply your every need? Because He expects you to be generous with it. He supplies you with abundance so that you can be abundantly generous to others. You see, sometimes we believe the prosperity gospel lie that when we give, God is going to give way more back to us, right? Sometimes we believe that lie subtly, even if we don't believe in the philosophy. Sometimes we think that if I give, God's going to give more. So we test it. We give, and God doesn't give. Why? Because He's already given us so much. And so we just stop giving. We stop being generous because we're so afraid of the future and we don't want to lose our pleasures. And yet, the Amazon packages keep coming. We keep on getting Starbucks coffee. We continue to live with abundance. And yet, we are reluctant of being generous because we are afraid that one day it will dry up and we will end up in poverty. Well, you know what? Let me tell you, friends. I've seen poverty with my own eyes, and there are people that have joy in poverty. It's not a terrible thing. But we're so afraid of it in the West because we are so used to wealth and abundance that we don't actually know what it's like to be poor, truly poor. God has supplied us an abundance, more than we can ask for. What are we doing with our wealth? This is where we come to our glorious purpose in verse 20. Paul ends this section fittingly with a doxology. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's interesting that he puts a doxology right here and not at the end of the epistle. Why? Because here he's climaxing this section. Finishing off with God has supplied our every need. He's drawing you back to the purpose of the Christian life to the glory of God. He supplies your need, to Him be praise and glory. He overflows you with generosity, to Him be praise and glory. He lavishes His riches upon you, to Him be praise and glory. It's the doxology of the Christian life. This is where He turns to. It's to remind us of our purpose. What we do when we give, it's to His glory. This is why we need to come back to that very original plan that we have set with the philosophers. Why do we ever? What is the right means of giving? Well, it's to the right people, the right amount, for the right purpose. Right people, right amount, right purpose. That's how we glorify God with our giving. You don't just give it away. You give to the right people, the right amount, for the right purpose. This is the purpose here, to His glory. He's entrusted to you for his mission. The gospel to be expanded is your responsibility with the means that you've been given. But it has to be to the right people, the right amount, for the right purpose. I want to conclude here in just a few observations and as we draw this to a conclude. Firstly, a paradigm, as the Philippian church are, is a paradigm, is not a law. Paul is not telling you, hey, this is how you live like the Philippians, it's not a law. I want you to know that. It's, he's holding up a model for you to follow. This is a paradigm. This is something you can look at. This is something you can be challenged by. This is not something that he's telling you, you have to go and do exactly like that. All of us struggle with giving in some way and form. I struggle with it myself, right? Deeply. I'm not a very generous person. And so this confronts me to understand that generosity, secondly, generosity is a grace given in different measures, <laughs> different measures, 
Generosity is a grace given in different measures to different people. Some people have just this generous spirit. It's, a, it's like a gift given to them. But it is also a virtue that needs to be practiced and cultivated for your good. It's good for you to be generous. And because it's a virtue, you need to practice generosity in order to enjoy it and to be, make it a habit. So start small, right? Right, people, right amount. Start small if you're not a very generous person, but start being generous today. Give over and above what you already give to the church and start small things. Sacrifice a little bit of maybe Starbucks this week and next week and give a little bit away. Start small things. If you're already a very generous person, come and speak to me afterwards and uh, we can uh, point to ways that you can be generous in the church with Pastor Rick and all that. But, but there's ways in which you can start small and start practicing generosity so it becomes a virtue. Right? Thirdly, generosity is an act of worship. We bring all of ourselves to the altar, including our possessions. All of ourselves. All of ourselves. Don't leave your act of giving at the door when you come into this church. You bring it with you, and you pray over it, you think over it, even if you do EFT. Think about it as an act of worship. God promises, God's promises are to supply our needs, not our wants, friends. Our needs, not our wants. We must recognize the difference between needs and wants, Account for those things. What is my needs? What is my wants? Has God ever forsaken you in your needs? <laughs> His promises are true. I don't think there's a person here that can say, God's ever forsaken me in my needs. Now recognize that He's received, received many wants as well and give Him praise for that. And firstly, God's glory is to be our purpose in all things we do, including our giving. That's the purpose of the Christian life. That's the goal. That's the telos. It is what we live for. His glory. All of our giving has to be centered around that, and so we have to be wise stewards of what He entrusts us with, but generous stewards, because that's what He calls us to be. All right, let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your grace and kindness. Thank You for Your mercy, and I pray that we'll use all of this to Your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.